All right, we're in our final session and section here, chapter 15, the gospel and the grave, reassurance regarding the resurrection, okay? Now, all of Paul's arguments in this whole book has been leading to this point. This is the crescendo. You've got these Corinthians who, mixed up in some of the teaching of the day again, have got some of that idea that the body doesn't matter. We've seen that show up earlier. That's part of the worldly wisdom, chapters 1 through 4, that have been dividing them. We saw it show up in, in, in the sexual immorality in chapter 5 and chapter 6, um, in the way that they're eating food, all this kind of stuff. That what's, there's misunderstandings about the body. And there are these, what some have said is maybe some early Gnostic influences that are tempting people to think of the body as just a thing uh, that needs to be escaped from, and that the real you is your spirit. And that when you die, then you'll just go be a spirit in the spirit world or whatever. The Bible is really clear that no. Resurrection happens. And let me tell you why resurrection is really important. I'm just going to go ahead and give you like just biblical theology. The Garden of Eden was a perfect world. Adam and Eve are created there. And death enters in because of sin. And what happens, there are ripple effects that have gone all through history with death everywhere. Everywhere is death. What God does through Jesus is He fixes everything. So at the end of the Bible, you're in a new garden where God's people, the bride and the husband, Jesus and the church, are together in a new garden where they're in the presence of God and all things are perfect and death is no more. Jesus is promised in the Old Testament that He's going to come and He is going to fix this. The way He does it is He crushes the serpent's head by being crushed by the serpent on the cross, taking the wrath that we deserved, rising from the dead physically. He rose from the dead physically, which is essential because what that does is the first fruits, as we're going to see. It sets off what will be a... uh, Yeah... A, a chain reaction someday when the Lord Jesus returns and everybody that has ever been buried will be raised up from the grave and will be united with Him, brought before Him, and judgment will happen. And those who know Him, who have been forgiven of their sins, will be given a glorified body in which they will be able to endure the glory of God for all of eternity. And those who do not know Him, who have not had their sins forgiven, will endure in their bodies the wrath of God for all of eternity. But what will be certain is that in that last day, when all things are done and we are in the new heavens and the new earth with the Lord Jesus and seeing God face to face, is that there will not be one trace of sin's victory on this planet. He's going to fix the whole thing. This is why resurrection is essential. Because God says, no, death will not win, sin will not win, I win. And he's going to bring people out of the grave. Okay? That's what, biblically, is, this is so important. Okay? Chapter 15. What we're going to do here is we're going to start off with some good news in verses 1 through 11. The good news of the gospel. And then we're going to hear some bad news, verses 12 through 19. That if Jesus didn't raise, it's, we're doomed. But there's great hope, verses 20 through 34, because Jesus is alive and 15, or yeah, 35 through 49, we're going to get glorified bodies, followed then by verse 50 through 58, he's going to talk about death's defeat, and we're going to sing a song about it, okay? Chapter 15, verse 1, 
Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. Notice their position. They, have a, they are standing with God, similar to Romans 5, 1. And by which you are being saved. So you stand secure and you are being saved even right now. So notice, right now you have been saved and you are being saved. And one day when Jesus returns, you will be saved fully and finally. Okay? If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This echoes back to the 1 Corinthians 10 warning about apostasy and idolatry. So hear what he's saying and hold to it fast by faith. Verse 3, For I delivered to you of what is first importance, what I also received. This is what he got from the Lord. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and so on. And that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Very similar to, uh, you think of Psalm 16 and other places. And that He appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So it's like He says, there's 500 people who saw Him alive. Go ask Him. Verse 7, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I, am perse- because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. He begins by bringing them back to the very thing that we began with, which was this gospel message. The certain assurance that there is a truth that is the wisdom from God. This is the cross uh, of Christ crucified. This is the power of God. Notice there, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. That is the good news. The good news is what Jesus has done. The four Gospels are summaries of the life of Jesus that all culminate and climax in that, what He did. Okay? This is the first thing and foundational thing that He wants them to remember. And then He talks about the proof of His resurrection by His appearing to everyone here. And then He highlights His indebtedness to the grace of God. Okay? So that's the good news. The good news of the Gospel. Now... Let's talk about some bad news. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how could some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So this must have been something that was going on in the Corinthian church. Some of them must have been saying that there's no real resurrection. That when you just go into the, when you go into the grave, your body goes there or whatever they do with it, and then your spirit goes off to, to spirit land. But he says here, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how could you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? What he's going to do is he's going to link the fact that Jesus rose with the fact that we will be raised. Verse 13, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we just wasted a lot of time. A lot of time. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He says, 
yeah. It, it's, it's bad enough that uh, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, that's one thing. But, but, but we're lying about God. He sees that as a serious thing. In verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who are also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are above, we are of all people most to be pitied. He says there's bad news if there's no resurrection. You've wasted your time. Every sermon is nonsense. Every person who has died is just in the grave. And there is nothing that matters. If, that's the, if Jesus has not raised from the dead, you should just go out and party and do whatever you want. It makes absolutely no matter. Verse 20. But there's great hope. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He got up on that third day. He is alive. And see what He calls Him here? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus' resurrection is the first of many resurrections. It's the first sprout of which a harvest is coming. There's a day coming when the full harvest will come in. Verse 21, For as by a man came death. Who's he talking about there? Adam. Adam brought death. And by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Jesus, right? For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus comes, as Romans 5 tells us, and He reverses the curse. He fixes what Adam didn't do. Jesus is the second Adam who did it right and who re- and died for all of the ways we did it wrong and then rose from the dead. Verse 23. Now He's going to lay out is, is the order of this, this resurrection. Each in its order. Christ, the firstfruits. Then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. So what He's saying is Jesus was raised first and then everybody who belongs to Jesus, will be raised from the dead when He returns. So 1 Thessalonians talks more about this. But when Christ returns, He will bring the spirits of the departed. So, so right now, here's what happens. If you, die and you're a, if, you, if you die and you're not a believer, your body goes into the ground or whatever you do with your body, and your spirit goes to a place called Hades. It's the place of the dead. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, we see that death and Hades are emptied at the great white throne and judgment happens. Hades is a place that is basically a waiting room for judgment day. People are alert and conscious there now. Right now. Their bodies are in the grave and they await the day of resurrection and judgment. If you're a believer... Before Christ rose from the dead, your body went into the grave and your spirit went to be with Abraham. And Abraham's bosom is what it was called. It was kind of a second section of Hades. So think of Hades as a circle with a line down the middle. Half was the place of the dead and the damned. The other was the, what Jesus called paradise when he talked with the man on the cross, the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise, that place where Abraham was and all those who have the faith of Abraham. You remember the rich man and Lazarus? That parable, Lazarus went to be with Abraham. And then you had the rich man who was in torment in the other place. And there was a great chasm between the two. That, that's, 
When Christ died, First Peter tells us that He went and he, he spoke to the spirits now in prison. His body goes into the grave. His spirit still alive. So human Jesus died on the cross. The eternal Son of God didn't die. Human Jesus dies, goes into the ground. His spirit's still alive because God can't die. So anyway, so Jesus goes and he proclaims to the spirits in prison victory. And then Ephesians says he led captivity captive, which likely means that he took all the people in Abraham's bosom. When he rose from the dead and ascended, he takes all of the Old Testament believers up into the presence of the Lord. That's why Philippians now says, absent from the body is present with the Lord. So if you're a believer now when you die, your body goes into the ground and your spirit goes to be with the Lord. We see a picture of that in Revelation chapter 6, where you have the saints who were slain for the testimony of the Word of God before God, crying out for justice. They're conscious, they're aware, they're in the presence of God, but they're also aware that things aren't done yet. That's happening right now. And what awaits is the day when the Father gives a command to the Son and He returns, and He will then bring the spirits of all those who have died in faith with Him, and their bodies will be resurrected from the ground, united, glorified with Him, and then He will establish His final stage of His kingdom. Okay, Which is what He says here. Verse 22. Let's look at it again. For as in Adam all die, book of Genesis, and in Christ also shall all be made alive, Gospels, but each in his first order, Christ the firstfruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ, so His return. Then comes the end. So when Christ comes back, then there's the end. When He delivers the kingdom uh, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what Jesus is going to do is He's going to fix everything. And it's like Jesus... Jesus, who purchased the church with His own blood, He he does it to please the Father. He gets the kingdom and gives it to the Father. We're reconciled to the Father here. Verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. Meaning the Father is not subjected to the Son. Which goes back, by the way, to that uh, 1 Corinthians 11 distinction of the Father and the Son. This is echoed here. Uh, Verse 28. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, who put all, all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. So all of history is about the Father and His mercies being magnified. The whole thing's about that. Jesus' work is all about that. That's why His whole ministry is about the Father. I don't even know what it's going to be like. It's going to be amazing when Jesus comes back and destroys all evil and we get to see the Father face to face and we are with Him forever. Christ as the bridegroom and we the bride in some kind of crazy land where there's no sin and it's going to be great. Whatever that is, that's what's a coming and that is good news for the people of God. Verse 29. Strange verse. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? I'll come back to that. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by, uh, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. 
What do I gain if, humbly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we will die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for we have no knowledge. For some say, I'm sorry, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What he's saying here is the reality of the return of Christ should sober you. It should wake you up. Be weary of all of your associations with worldly wisdom, of which I think a manifestation of that was some strange group that was baptizing for the dead. So I, I think what he's simply highlighting is why would people say, why would people baptize for the dead if they don't think there's actually a resurrection? He's, he's showing the contradiction in their, in their belief system. He's not saying this is something that should be done. He's simply commenting on something that is done and that it makes no sense for them to do that if they think there's no resurrection. Okay, so he's not, he's not putting that forth as a practice, though Mormons practice that, but we would certainly not. And what he's highlighting here is that he suffers for the gospel. And the reason he does it is because he believes that Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then what are they going to do to him? Kill him? Then what? He's going to get raised later. Come at me is what he's saying. It doesn't matter. Now, if Jesus didn't die, what's he say? Cash in the chips and let's hit the bar. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. We're going to die. There's no point except the party. But he said, that's not the case. So be careful of who you're hanging around with. Because there's worldly wisdom that's infecting you and it's leading you into drunken stupors and you're not sober. Wake up, he says, because Christ is coming soon. Verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Well, what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. I was like, oh, I thought that was a good question. Uh, (laughs) Never mind. My bad. (laughs) You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But, But God gives it a body as He has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans and another for animals and another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for the star differs from star in glory. What he's saying is this, is that there's different kinds of bodies. And that for a for a body to come to, to real life, in one sense, like a kernel, you got to put it in the ground and then it has to die. And then it sprouts up into something very new. He says that new kind of thing is a picture of the resurrection. Your body will be put into the ground and a new kind of body will come out. And you say, are there different kinds of bodies? And he says, yeah, look at all of creation. There's all kinds of different bodies. Well, in the same way that there's all kinds of different bodies, well, there's a different kind of body than the one you have right now and the one that you will inherit on the last day. There is a glorified body. Oh, come on. I'm ready for some of that. A glorified body. He's going to talk about this more and more, but he wants us to know that the bodies that we have are not going to be the bodies that we have later. What I don't mean by that is that... Here's what I do mean by that. The body that you have right now is going to be transformed or what you might call glorified. 
So you will be in the same existing, you will be in the same body that you have, but whatever glorified means, that's what he's going to do to it. So I don't know if that means you're going to run like a 2-2-40 or what. I don't know what it means, okay? I ain't got an idea, but whatever it is, it'll be great, okay? <laughs> 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. We just had a funeral recently for a sister named Sarah. And they had a part where the casket was open. He just looked and you just see her body laying there. And it's just, it's dishonorable. Meaning, like it's, she's just, she's not there. Her, her body's there. And this, she's just, it's not what it was. This is, this is, the, this is the image and the glory of God fallen. Death is one. I remember whenever my first funeral I did as a, as a young pastor. I, I never was really around death as a, as a, as a, until I was a pastor. And I remember we got out to this graveyard. And it was one of those graveyards where, you know, it was kind of on a hill. And we were down near the bottom. And I remember it was kind of one of those moments where life was a slow motion. Where I'm, I'm here and I'm, we're, putting, we're putting a saint into the ground. And I looked up and I saw tombstones just staring at me. And it's like, it's like death was laughing. We got another one. But there's a, there's a poem by a guy named Henry Wordsworth, I believe, or Wadsworth, who it's called God's Acre. And what it talks about is a graveyard, that it's God's acre in which he plants acorns. And then one day, one day a harvest is going to come. And great oaks will sprout up to life. And I thought of that while I was standing there with those graves mocking the fallen saint and saying, you're next. And say, I might perish, but I ain't going to stay in there and you ain't going to win. Because Jesus is going to come back and he will raise people from the dead. He will. It was sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. Sown in weakness. Raised in power. Sown a natural body. Raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You have the second Adam giving a new life and a new body. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Adam was made from the dust. Jesus came from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. What he's saying is that, well, let me finish. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so also we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. What he's saying is that you were born like Adam, down here, under the curse of sin. And your body's going to, most likely, unless Jesus returns before you die, your body's going to go into the grave. But it ain't going to stay there. That the man from heaven, who came from heaven to earth to die on a cross, 
and then to defeat death, has gone back to heaven. But He's coming a second time, and He will take us to be with Him. Which brings us to verse 50. Death's defeat. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Meaning, you can't go to heaven like you are. You, you can't go like this. Something's got to be done to you to be able to endure the glory of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Meaning sleep here as, as in death. Not everybody's going to die. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on the immortality. So what he's saying here is, is there's some who will be alive when Jesus returns and they will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Everybody else who's with Him will happen as we described earlier. Their spirits will be reunited with their bodies and, and transformed. Now, Thessalonians tells us that that will happen first. That those who are uh, dead in Christ will be raised first and then we will be brought up with them. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written from Isaiah 25, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? There's a day when the redeemed will sing over the grave, where are you at? forevermore gone because Jesus defeated the grave and in Him we have that same victory. 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death is sin. This is, this is what sin brings death. The law uh, the power of sin shows itself in the law that we can't keep the law and it slays us. But Jesus, the law keeper, the one who is victorious over death, gives us the victory. 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says that no matter what you face, you've got to remember before you that Jesus is coming back and that you must labor for His glory in His name for the good of others and for the, the furtherance of the gospel. He says this is what we are about. So take courage in that. And I would just say for us, there's a sweetness to being a Christian when you think about death. That you don't need to be afraid of death. You, now, I think we'd all probably a little bit afraid of how we're going to die. Like we'd like it to be like a sleep, you know, maybe after a nice meal or something like that. But it's okay to think about, like, I don't want to die in a certain way. You know, you'll get anxious about it. But, but, but death itself, though there's uncertainties, it, it is a doorway into the presence of God where faith, will be sight and hope will be needed no more. 
This is why Jesus, when he calls people to himself, step one is die. You've got to die. You must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Because where Jesus leads to, there is much suffering and persecution and trial and tribulation. And the whole world around you is going to mock you and think you're crazy and call, call the gospel that you preach foolishness. And there's going to be worldly wisdom all the time that's going to be pulling on you. It's going to be confusing. And many around you are going to get caught up in it. And, and he says, stay immovable by keeping your eyes upon Christ and his word by the Spirit. And you know what? The, if they kill you, then you're going to be with the Lord. And this is our hope, that we need not fear death, but that we trust in the one who has defeated death, Christ our Lord. Now briefly, he concludes in chapter 16 with um, discussion about offerings. So verses 1 through, um, well, this first part here, evidently what's happened is the church has heard Um, that there's some kind of offering being taken up for the church in Jerusalem, and they want to know more about it. Um, So Paul is going to give them some instructions here. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So some speculate that they had heard from the churches of Galatia about this offering, and and they didn't know about it, so now they're asking Paul. Well, on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, Sunday, each one of you... uh, is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Just a couple things to notice here. First of all is that churches here are expected to be thinking about other churches. The reason that they're taking up an offering is because... The churches in Jerusalem are suffering. They are under intense persecution. They're losing jobs. They're losing spouses. It's hard there. So the churches, the Gentile churches, primarily, are doing collections for the church in Jerusalem to help support them. I think it's a good reminder for us that yeah, as, we're, as we are able, we should always be mindful that if there's a sister church that's struggling, that we should be desirous to help them particularly if they're struggling because of persecution. Second thing to notice here is that Paul, and it may just be a Corinthian thing, but he seems real allergic to money in them. He's like, listen, y'all, do your collecting before I get there because I don't want to be any part of the collection. And then I want you to get your own guys who you think are worthy of taking that money, and I want you to write some letters. And listen, if you need me to go with them, that's fine, but... I don't, it's almost like he's distancing himself from that. I don't think that's his practice all the time, but I certainly think it's his practice here with the Corinthians because, again, he knows them and kind of what, what they're like. Okay? Now, verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend uh, to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just... Uh, now, just in passing, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. One of the charges that's been levied against Paul, which you see is echoed in Second Corinthians, uh, which, um, which you see in Second Corinthians, 
is, um, is that Paul didn't love this church and wasn't going to ever come back to him. He just kind of abandoned them. So all these false apostles are sweeping in and be like, we'll take care of you. And Paul's like, well, hold up, y'all. I'm coming back. And I want to just drop in for like a weekend stay. I'd love to stay a while. So he's letting them know that. But he's also letting them know that just his fellowship with them is not the primary thing that he has going on right now. You're going to see both he and Apollo say, listen, it's not the right time for us to come to you. If the Lord opens a door, we want to come, but now's not the time. I think it's important just to notice here that there are priorities in ministry. Sometimes you say no to good things that might be helpful because there's other things that the Lord is doing. This takes just great wisdom and prayerfulness and counsel, um, but we see Paul exercising that, that here. Now, verse 10, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return uh, to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Paul may be slightly concerned that because Timothy and Timothy are tight, that they might be giving Timothy the cold shoulder when he shows up, but he's exhorting them to make sure they don't do that because Timothy is faithful. Timothy is one of his, um, his own child in the faith uh, who's, who's been there to Corinth and, and certainly loves them as well. Now he's moving on to these, these final instructions. Verse 12, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. I wonder why I didn't want to go to that church. Um, he will come when he has opportunity. So I meant that a little tongue-in-cheek, but I, we, we don't know. It appears that Apollos, in the same way, said now's not the time to go back to Corinth. They all loved Apollos because, you know, they were ready to do some seminars and some conferences when he came in. They're like, woo, Apollos is coming. But he's like, now's not the time. Okay. Verse 13. Some, some words of wisdom. Be watchful. Be watchful. Know that sin is near. Stand firm in the faith, as there's many things that will pull you away. Act like men, which means take responsibility here. Be strong. And again, this is an exhortation, this, this one toward the leadership. But be, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Notice here again, strength and love, they go hand in hand. So any strength should be used for love. It should be void of it. Now I urge you, brothers, verse 15, you know that the household of Stephanos uh, were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every follower, fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunas and Archicus because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So though Paul is trying to downplay factions, he does think at the same time it's important to highlight leaders you can trust. And this is what he's doing there. He's, he's putting his name, his apostolic affirmation on Timothy and these other three brothers because as they go back, he wants the church to receive them well and listen to them well because he trusts them. I think an exhortation for us there is just to think and to be mindful that in all your ministry, seek to be representing well the one who sends you. So this is one of the things like our church where it's a transient church, people come and go. As people go out, I'm always eager and hopeful that people who leave from our church will go and be a blessing in another church and that they will be better at the next church because they've had time with us. Not that we're amazing, but we think God is, he, he can work in time together. So, yeah, 
For any of you who leave and go off to somewhere else, just the exhortation would be to to go in the name of Christ and to serve and to bless other flocks. Paul is putting his name on these people in the same way that I'm often very happy to reach out to other churches and be like, listen, y'all have a wonderful couple who's coming. You have a really godly sister who's coming down there. Or this guy, man, he loves the Lord. Hope he fits right in. That's a joy for me. Let us all be that in whatever seasons God gives it to us. Well, verse 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla, which are, those, those, that couple is everywhere in the New Testament. They're show, I mean, they're, I don't know how they do it. Like, they're almost omnipresent, I think. They are every church, everybody knows this is that godly couple that, I mean, they're just, they're showing up in Ephesus, and they're showing up here, and they're showing, they're just all over the place. And they were there whenever the, the church was planted. Um, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church that is in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So they're in Ephesus now with him. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This was a, a common greeting. I, Paul, ooh, which by the way, so that's a good example. The same thing with head coverings. The creation principle, if you will, is hospitality. Just as the creation principle in the, in the 1 Corinthians 11 thing was, was male headship. The cultural application is a kiss, where for us it might be a handshake or a dab or a high five or a hey or whatever it is, right? That same kind of greeting, but it's a cultural, it's a cultural command that we wouldn't say, oh, that means everybody needs to give each other a holy kiss, all right? Love y'all, but don't try, don't try, all right? Uh, I just like, I'm, I like my personal space, it's cool, don't worry about it. Um, but, but we should greet one another in the Lord, so that principle remains, though the cultural application would be a little different. Well, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to conclude our time by seeing if there's any final questions about resurrection stuff or here in chapter 16. We've got time for just a moment. A few. I saw a hand. Did you have a question? Anybody? Yeah, Mark. I just have a question about um, when he's saying, you know, Jesus was raised according to the scriptures, he died according to the scriptures. How are we to understand the source material he's referencing? So I assume that's the Old Testament. Certainly. Should we assume anything else, like regarding gospels that had been written already, or you know, because Peter, uh, in his epistles, say. Some of Paul's writings are hard to understand, along with, and he, he refers to them as scriptures. So should we just assume that he's talking about the Old Testament? I've never thought about it. Um, I've always just thought of it as the Old Testament. By this time, it is possible that they would have had other writings, which would have been scriptures as well. I, I think, I think the, the pattern of the apostles in Acts is to use... Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 16, passages like this um, as the, the proof that what Jesus did is, fu- is fulfillment of Old Covenant. So I would think he probably means that. But for us, it certainly means all of it, right? You know, so, yeah, whether, whether it be the prophecy of it in the Old Testament or the um, explanation of it in the New. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At, the, at the other 
Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, it's, no, it's a, good, a good consideration. He sees himself as one untimely born, um, which, which he, he just says, it's like, it's like somebody who got adopted, you know, like who was kind of maybe 16 years old or something like that, who thought I'm probably never going to, and then all of a sudden you brought into a family, now I have a family, you just feel like the thankfulness. Like he's like, I'm in the family. I used to try and kill him, and now I'm part of the family. <laughs> like it blows his mind, right? And yeah, I think, I think he, he's indebted to grace, and he knows it. He knows. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it's good. We thank you for the way that it lifts our eyes and our hearts and our affections to see Jesus. Oh God, we pray that you'd help us to love Jesus more because of this. God, we've been under a, yeah, a lot of um, teaching. Lord, we pray that we would not just be smarter sinners. I would pray that we would not be, think that we've accomplished something because we know a book. God, might, might we know that we see in a mirror dimly? Might we, might we desire all the more your word? And God, might you help us to be a people who truly think about the things we've heard and talk about the things we've heard. Confess areas of sinfulness and worldliness that we see. And Lord, might we all the more desire to see Jesus return. Might you make that uh, an ever-abiding hope for us in such a way that would help us to see sin as so foolish. Oh God, would you help us to be watchful as was commanded. We thank you for Jesus and we pray this in his name. Amen.